Blog Talk Radio. Once again, we're coming to you live from the Eastern Airlines Radio Show Studio in St. Augustine, Jacksonville, Florida. Thanks for listening to Eastern Airlines Radio, and my name is Neil Holland, the producer of the show. Today, December 7th, we have a special show for you. December 7th, 2019, exactly 79 years ago, Imperial Japan's Navy launched a preemptive attack on the U.S. Navy base at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii, killing more than 2,400 Americans. The United States declared war against Japan the next day. Every year on this date, we honor those whose lives were lost in this dastardly attack. Many do not know what happened to the architect of this very well-planned and carried out attack. So we thought on this day we would bring you the rest of the story. assassinated the Japanese admiral responsible for Pearl Harbor was written by Michael Peck. 
This time, the target wasn't a terrorist. It was a Japanese admiral who planned the Pearl Harbor operation. But the motive was the same payback for a sneak attack on the United States. In early 1943, Isoruku Yamamoto, commander-in-chief of the Japanese Navy, was one of the most hated men in America. He was seen as the Asian devil in naval dress, the fiend who treacherously struck peaceful, sleeping America. And when the United States saw a chance for payback in April 1943, there was no hesitation. Hence, a code name unmistakable in its intent was given, Operation Vengeance. As with today's drone strikes, the operation began with an intercepted message, except it wasn't a call from a cell phone, but rather a routine military radio signal. In the spring of 1943, Japan was in trouble. The Americans had captured Guadalcanal despite a terrible sacrifice of Japanese ships and aircraft. Stung by criticism that senior commanders were not visiting the front to ascertain the situation, Yamamoto resolved to visit naval air units on the South Pacific island of Bougainville. As was customary, a coded signal was sent on April 13, 1943, to the various Japanese commands in the area listing the admiral's itinerary as well as the number of transport planes and fighter escorts in his party. But American codebreakers had been reading Japanese diplomatic and military messages for years, including those in the JN-25 code used in various forms by the Imperial Navy throughout the World War II. The Yamamoto signal was sent in the new JN-25D variant, but that didn't stop American cryptanalysis from deciphering it in less than a day. Admiral Chester Nimitz, the U.S. commander in the Pacific, authorized an operation to shoot down Yamamoto's plane. With typical spleen, Pacific Fleet Commander William Bull Halsey issued his own unambiguous message. It, it read, Tally-ho, X, let's get the bastard. Yet getting Am Yamamoto was easier said than done. Navy and Marine fighters like the F-4F Wildcat and the F-4U Corsair didn't have the range to intercept Yamamoto's aircraft over Bougainville, 400 miles from the nearest American air base on Guadalcanal. The only fighter with long range or long enough legs was the U.S. Army Air Force's twin-engine Lockheed P-38G Lightning. But even the P-38s faced a difficult task. To avoid detection, detection America planned it wanted them to fly at least 50 miles offshore of these islands which meant dead reckoning over 400 miles over water at 50 feet or less, a prodigious feat of navigation, according to a history of the 13th Fighter Command, the parent organization of the 339th Fighter Squadron that flew the mission. 
Even worse, the Lightnings had no AWACS radar aircraft or land-based radar to guide them to the target or even to tell them where Yamamoto's plane was. Nor could the U.S. aircraft loiter over Bougainville in the midst of numerous Japanese fighter bases. They would essentially have to intercept Yamamoto where and when he was scheduled to be. However, by calculating the speed of the Japanese G-4M Betty Bomber that would carry Yamamoto, probable wind speed, the enemy's probable flight path, and assuming that Yamamoto would be as punctual as he was reputed to be, American planners estimated the intercept would occur at 9.35 a.m. The Americans assigned 18 P-38s for the mission, of which a flight of four would pounce on Yamamoto's plane, while the remainder would climb above as top cover against Japanese fighters. Two lightnings avoided on the way to Bougainville, leaving just 16 to perform the mission. That the Americans arrived just a minute early at 9.34 was remarkable. Even more remarkable was that the Japanese appeared on time a minute later. Flying at 4,500 feet were two Betty bombers, one carrying Yamamoto and the other his chief of staff, Vice Admiral Matomi Ugaki. They were escorted by six AGM-0 fighters keeping watch 1,500 feet above them. Still undetected, 12 lightnings climbed to 18,000 feet, and the remaining four attacked the Bettys, with the first pair flown by Captain Thomas Lamphere II and Lieutenant Rex Barber, closing in for the kill. As the two bombers dived to evade the interceptors, the American pilots couldn't even be sure which one carried Yamamoto. Lamphere engaged the escorts while Barber pursued the two bombers. Barber's cannon shells and bullets slammed into the first Betty, an aircraft model notorious for being fragile and flammable. With its left engine damaged, it slammed into the jungle. Then the second Betty, attacked by three of the P-38s, crashed into the water. The Americans had locked out again. The Betty that crashed into the jungle, killing its crew and passengers, had carried Yamamoto. From the Betty that hit the water, Admiral Ugaki survived hours after Imperial, Imperial Hirohito announced Japan's surrender on August 15, 1945. Ugaki took off in a kamikaze and was never heard from again. A Japanese search party hacked through the jungle until they found Yamamoto's plane. Afterward, the Admiral's body and the others were cremated and the ashes put into boxes, recounts the 13th Fighter Command history. His, crema his cremation pit was filled and two papaya trees, his favorite fruit, were planted on the mound. A shrine was erected and Japanese naval personnel cared for the graves until the end of the war. Yamamoto's remains were returned to Japan aboard the super battleship 
Musashi in May of 1943 for a state funeral that drew a million mourners. For the Americans, euphoria and satisfaction were dogged by post-war controversy that lasted for 60 years over who actually shot down Yamamoto's plane. Barber and Lamphere were credited with a half kill apiece, though many critics said Barber should have received full credit. The irony was that uh, Yamamoto was not the worst of America's enemies. He was no pacifist, but not, nor was he as militaristic as the hardcore Japanese hardliners. Yamamoto opposed the 1940 alliance with Nazi Germany, which he feared would drag Japan into a ruinous war. While he didn't oppose war as a means of saving Japan from a crippling U.S. oil embargo in 1941, his depiction as a peacemonger in the movie Tora 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 is really essentially wrong. He did warn Japanese leader, leaders that in the first six to 12 months of a war with the United States and Great Britain, he said, I will run wild and win victory upon victory. But then, if the war continues after that, I have no expectation of success. Did Yamamoto's death affect the war? His Pearl Harbor operation was audacious and brilliant. But his poor strategy at Midway, six months later, destroyed Japan, Japan's elite aircraft carrier force. Ironically, it was also U.S. code-breaking that set the stage for the Midway disaster. By 1943, he was a sick and exhausted man. Perhaps he might have come up with a better um, late war naval strategy than the disastrous battles of the Philippine Sea and Layette Gulf. Yet not even the architect of Pearl Harbor could save Japan from defeat. Yamamoto's assassination is still significant because it has been cited as a precedent for today's drone strikes. To be clear, there is no doubt that assassinating Yamamoto was legal according to the laws of war. He was an enemy soldier in uniform flying in an enemy military aircraft that was attacked by uniform U.S. military personnel in marked military aircraft. This is nothing new. In 1942, British commandos unsuccessfully attempted to assassinate Rommel, and modern militaries devote great efforts to locating enemy headquarters to kill commanders and staffs. But what's really interesting is that compared with the controversy over today's targeted assassinations, there was remarkably little fuss made over the decision to kill Yamamoto. The U.S. military treated it as a purely military matter that didn't need civilian approval. Admiral Nimitz authorized the interception, and the orders was passed were passed down the military chain of command. There was no presidential decision nor Justice Department review. It's hard to imagine that the killing of a top al-Qaeda leader, let alone a top Russian, Chinese, or North Korean commander, 
would be treated so routinely. Yamamoto's death was significant on the symbolic level, but in military terms, he was just another casualty of war. This article was written and appeared uh, on Yahoo News. It's written by Michael Peck, who is a contributing writer for the National Interest, and his articles can be found on Twitter and Facebook. The first that this article appeared was back in September of this year, 2019. Well, that's our special report for December 7th, 2019, and we hope you enjoyed the broadcast today, and we will be bringing you more special reports as they come to our attention. And be sure to listen and call in to our Monday, December 9th broadcast with our host, as we again pay tribute to the men and women, both military and civilian, who lost their lives in the attack on Pearl Harbor. If you have a special memory or story you would like to share with us, we would certainly like to hear it. Remember, for most all of our shows, our call-in number for the show is 213-816-1611. And before we sign off, with the wonderful music of Merle Haggard. I see we have a a listener online. Well, not a listener. I believe it's one of our hosts. So I'm going to open his microphone and say hello on this Pearl Harbor Day. And perhaps, Chuck, are you listening? I sure am. And that was a great presentation. I learned a lot from that. There was a lot of things that, I study, obviously, being in the military for 26 years, but some of those things were never brought to light. I had a similar experience with my commander, General Westmoreland. When we were at the height of the Vietnam War, he wanted to take the war all the way to China, and the powers-to-be, so to speak, uh, felt that that would not accomplish, uh, first of all, wouldn't accomplish what he, he thought he was going to do. And second of all, they thought that world opinion would have turned against the United States. And, you know, um, he was probably right. We would have uh, come out a lot better than what we did in uh, 75 is when we actually um, left Vietnam. And uh, so that was a, a real uh, eye-opener there about Yamamoto. I'd studied a little bit about him. And um, that was actually something that a lot of the things there you had quoted in your article from the gentleman there, uh, I didn't know about. So I thank you for bringing that up. It's it really nice. And You know, uh I especially enjoyed the music that I played. Of course, it was the theme music from the movie Pearl Harbor, uh, another great movie that uh, that uh, really is, I think, is a classic of all those movies that have been presented about Pearl Harbor, was Tora, Tora, Tora. And uh, I'm sure you, yeah, I'm sure you've seen both of those uh, movies. Pearl Harbor was good. I think Ben Affleck was in that movie. And uh, that theme, 
yeah, that theme music came from that music, uh, from that uh, movie. So uh, we'll play some more interesting uh, sounds and clips from Pearl Harbor Monday night. You plan to be with us, don't you, Chuck? Oh, yeah, I'll be there. Okay. Well, it uh, looks like you might uh, have uh, filled our uh, Jim Hart's role. I haven't heard, none of us have heard from him. And so uh, we we love having you do our announcing at the front end and the back end of our shows. And we've got some great stuff coming up here for 2020, which is just a few days away. So with that... Thanks so much, Chuck, for being with me tonight. And uh, I just thought it would be good to tell uh, another story associated with, in other words, uh, when did we get Bin Bin Laden, you know? And uh, how did we get him? How did we take him? Well, a lot of folks have forgotten how we got and we did get Admiral Yamamoto. You remember one of the classic sayings that he had, when uh, he designed this attack on Pearl Harbor and presented it to his leaders. And he basically said, I'm just paraphrasing what I could remember of it. Gentlemen, with this attack on Pearl Harbor, we have awakened a sleeping giant. That's exactly right. Yeah, and uh, so it was. And America came alive, and of course, uh, uh, that was uh, the rest is history. So we'll play our going out song, which we'll be playing more of, Merle Haggard and Willie Nelson, in uh, the coming shows that we have planned. December the 6th will be our first musical history, and uh, look forward to doing that. I think you're going to have fun. Uh, taking part in the show it's it's going to be a fun show so let's hear a little silver wings music and we'll sign off with that well, we'll see you on the radio see you chuck silver wings shining in the sun
O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. <laughs> 